Hello and welcome to the Limbic Educational Series on Supportive Care in Hemato-Oncology. In this four-part series we will be discussing what supportive care means in this context and whether clinicians and patients are on the same page, as well as communication, patient education and improving the whole patient journey. In episodes two and three we will cover managing infection and treatment toxicities before moving on to psychosocial support and palliative care in the final episode. But today we're going to get the ball rolling by providing an overview of the topic with our expert guests. Joining us to discuss this, we have Michelle Kenyon, Consultant Nurse in BMT at King's College Hospital NHS Foundation Trust and EBMT Nurses Group President. We also have Stella Bocock, Consultant Hematologist, interested in myeloma, but treating patients across all hematological malignancies, also based at King's. Thank you both so much for talking to us about this important topic today. Stella, I'd like to start with you, um, because when we talked about this, you had a very interesting description of uh, your view of the three main pillars of supportive care in hemato-oncology. Can you talk us through those pillars and why you think it's important to view supportive care in this way? Yes, thank you. Um, it gives me great pleasure to take part in this podcast with Michelle and yourself. Let's start with a definition of supportive care. Uh, the Multinational Association of Supportive Care in Cancer uh, gives a definition of supportive care as the prevention and management of the adverse effects of cancer and its treatment. So you can see it covers many different aspects in a patient's care. Therefore, it's helpful to group it into three areas, three pillars. Um, the first is managing and preventing the medical, compl medical complications. Um, the second is education and communication. And the third is supporting the patient through the whole patient journey. But let's start by asking ourselves why supportive care is important. It's particularly important in hemato-oncology because it's not just an add-on, it's actually part of the treatment and care. It enhances the quality of life for patients, and it also uh, provides a survival benefit. Many of our uh, interventions are very important. It's, this is mainly because of the profound immunosuppression in hematological malignancies and the risk of infection, as well as the complications of bone marrow failure. It's therefore key that we optimize supportive care in hemato-oncology. Infection prevention and early recognition of infection and treatment has been shown to improve survival in all the hematological malignancies. Remember that in AML, the backbone of treatment was unchanged for at least four decades with cytarabine and dornarubicin until the recent new drugs, and yet overall survival improved with each decade. This was due mainly to improve supportive care. So that gives you an overview of just how important supportive care is. So let's look more carefully at these three main pillars in supportive care. <clears throat> Managing and preventing the medical complications. And I would say the five biggest areas of preventing and managing infection I've mentioned, toxicities, and both of those are having separate podcasts because they're so important, um, transfusion support, analgesia, antiemetics, and, and there are many other areas. I just want to say something quickly about analgesia because I don't think we're very good at it. Um, but of course, 
Our drugs are so effective that in general, the most effective way of controlling pain is to control the underlying disease. And uh, it, in, in general, our, the, the pain tends to go away once we get the disease under control. The challenge is once people become more palliative and the disease begins to become more resistant. And at that point, um, there is a question whether one should continue the drugs, and particularly in myeloma, that's an important factor. And But I don't have any problem with a patient continuing the drugs during a transition to palliation because um, it may still be partially effective. And I've had some very nasty experiences of stopping drugs suddenly when a patient's become palliative and the disease exploding. And it, it, there is actually a benefit sometimes to patient continuing the drugs right through palliation so that they have a controlled death rather than uncontrolled explosive death. Um, but it's very important that the, the, the clinician and the patient understands that. Um, then the second area is education and communication, helping the patient and carer understand their treatment and like the outcomes. And we recognize that that's key to working in partnership with the patient and their carers. <clears throat> it's a continuous process throughout the patient journey. The other thing is in the literature, there's good evidence that patients' treatment decisions are heavily influenced by the way in which we communicate with them. So it's very important for us to try to be objective and careful about the way we put across information and communicate. And ultimately, of course, the CNSs, the clinical nurse specialists, are so important in terms of education and communication with the patient. They do a lot of the education of the patient. Um, and then there's the question of improving the, 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 the patient journey, the whole patient journey. So that's this is the third pillar. And the NHS is very complex. There, uh, patients are often elderly. They have multiple comorbidities, many different appointments, and patients need help and support. Um, we want our healthcare interactions to be a pleasure and not a hurdle to these patients. Um, and then, then, of course, the third area is looking at the the challenges of completing or stopping treatment and helping a patient begin to look forwards uh, to what's going to happen next. Um, I just want to just to end up finally with some evidence and to look at the evidence of what patients think their unmet needs are in cancer. The NCRI before its threatened demise partnered with the James Lind Alliance, which is a, uh, on a priority setting partnership the James Lind Alliance is an initiative bringing together patients, carers and clinicians to highlight frustrations of patients and to generate areas for patient-focused research. They came up with 26 questions, and if you categorise them, they fall within these three pillars. Managing the side effects of treatment, which is pillar one. Improving communication and making more informed treatment decisions, pillar two. And then... Uh, improving the patient journey in terms of the complexities of healthcare and also the need to address psychosocial concerns and the challenges of living with and beyond cancer, the pillar three. Of course, we're especially indebted to the CNSs who provide a great deal of support in all areas and especially in improving the patient journey. In fact, they're so good at it that we can be tempted, to, uh, particularly as doctors, not to be engaged in this. But actually, good supportive care is everyone's responsibility, including the receptionist, the pharmacist, dietitian, 
physiotherapist and the hospital volunteer. So thank you. Thank you, Stella. I think that's um, such a useful start and a helpful framework for how we can look at the the overview of supportive care in hematooncology. Um, Michelle, let's start with the kind of those aspects around managing and preventing medical complications. We'll be going into more detail on this in episodes two and three. Um, but I'd like to just get your view about, about what might be unique about this aspect for this group of patients and what that might mean for how we should approach their care. Uh, hi there. Thanks very much, Emma. Yeah. So, I mean, our hemato-oncology patients face some really significant challenges from their illness, including the physical, emotional, functional problems, such as things like the inability to work. And I think in addition to this, a lot of people with cancer also experience side effects from their cancer treatment itself. Of course, these effects can be short term or long term or even lifelong for some patients. So each patient's risk and experience is going to be different. And as a result, the supportive care is about treating the whole person and it's dynamic. So it changes to meet the ongoing needs of the patients. And then when we think about managing and preventing medical complications, we're really looking at aspects of care, such as alleviation of symptoms and complications of the disease and the prevention or the reduction of the treatment toxicities. I guess examples of those complications might include pain, peripheral neuropathy, skeletal complications, anemia, fatigue, nausea and vomiting, anorexia, constipation, diarrhea, mucositis. There is an endless list almost. But while much of the supportive care can be provided by the hemato-oncology team, if patients fail to respond or experience intolerable side effects, we should really be seeking some advice from the other specialist teams. For example, for some patients, satisfactory symptomatic management is only achieved through good multidisciplinary collaboration and specialist input from colleagues in palliative medicine or pain management. However, in order for supportive care that we provide to be truly person-centered, our standard medical assessment needs to be complemented by an assessment of holistic needs or a holistic needs assessment. And there are a number of self-report tools that are available. They're generally multi-domain covering physical, practical, emotional, spiritual and relationship concerns. And patients can give the concerns of interest a rating to describe the degree to which that concern is bothering them, which in turn helps us to prioritise those concerns in discussing those in a supportive conversation, which then leads to a care plan. And these tools are really helpful for enabling patients to articulate their concerns and validate those issues that they might be experiencing at different stages of their care. And then for us as clinicians, it really helps us to ask a standard set of questions to every single patient, which is free from our clinician bias. And then in this way, supportive care is delivered comprehensively and in true partnership with our patients and their families. Yes, and I, I think that moves us um, sort of quite nicely onto the next aspect that I wanted to, to ask about, which was education, by which I mean sort of how we communicate and talk to patients and help them understand um, the, the treatments and the care that, that they're having. Um, Stella, how, how important is communication um, of this aspect? Have you had circumstances perhaps where the patient and clinician expectation for supportive care may have 
differed or there's been sort of a, a misunderstanding there perhaps yes thank you um really ed uh, education and communication is so important it's important to continue to provide education to the patient and carer at each consultation every healthcare interaction is an opportunity to uh, help patients understand a little bit more about what's happening and why um, it is a gradual process i mean after all, we're all learning, we go on learning, and the patients are learning at every point really throughout their, their journey. <clears throat> yes, I've certainly had instances where the patient and clinician understanding uh, about care have differed really widely. It's a common scenario, usually in the situation of bad news. The doctor may think that they've made the poor prognosis clear, but the patient and or carer have not taken it in. I think this is because there are two reasons, because people are different in the way they receive bad news. And it is also because, as I said, it, it, education is a gradual process. Um, so some understand the bad news instantly and others take time to process it. So it's not necessarily, we need to recognize that it's not necessarily the patient being difficult or not wanting to recognize it but just that they're not ready and that they need to be led a little bit by the hand. Um, there are well-established protocols about the most effective way of giving bad news. And I would urge everyone in hemato-oncology to, uh, to, to go on a course because it's absolutely key to do, uh, to do that. Um, for example, one of them is the protocol called the SPIKES protocol, and that includes finding an appropriate setting finding out what the patient's perception and understanding of their illness is to start with, then inviting the patient to tell you how much they want to know, then giving them the knowledge clearly and objectively and without any jargon, and then allowing the patient to show emotions and to respond empathically to that. And then, uh, of course, most importantly, to make a strategy and summarise for the patient so that they can look forwards after you've given the bad news. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned there about this being a, a gradual process. And of course, disease for many of these patients isn't linear. It's a roller coaster. It's up and down as they kind of have relapses, etc. Um, Michelle, how, how do you find that conversation changes over time? Perhaps the patient might get more used to the treatment that they're having or their understanding changes. How do you as the um, as the healthcare professional uh, kind of navigate that? Yeah, thanks, Emma. I think it's really important to ensure, first and foremost, that we remain clear and consistent in the messages and the information that we're giving to the patients throughout the disease and treatment journey. So a diagnosis, for example, we're imparting huge amounts of technical information, including lots of unfamiliar content concepts and terminology. So there's a lot to take on board. And often this is in the face of a shock and surprise at a, at a diagnosis, but also a patient who may be feeling quite unwell. So in that context, you know, it's often important to revisit that information several times. They're complex diseases. And so the information needs to be broken down uh, and simplified to be understood. There is usually a need to reiterate the information uh, and we often can support this with a whole range of multimedia resources and links for blood cancer and hemato-oncological charities so that patients can increase their familiarity and browse reliable information. 
Sometimes it can also be helpful to go through written resources with patients, highlighting particularly useful sections. And again, in that way, we're endorsing the resources that we are using. And these resources can also be very useful in prompting patients to ask relevant questions about their treatment and care when they come to appointments. It's also important to consider how a patient might best access information. Think about those for whom English is not their first language or have a reading age lower than the standard, have a sight or hearing impairment, and those for whom a translator is needed so that this can be arranged well in advance of any uh, appointments, whether they be face-to-face -face or telephone. Information needs to be age appropriate and also culturally relevant for those patients. At this uh, early stage, as well as the diagnosis and treatment information, patients and their families often need quite a lot of practical information and perhaps referrals to help to understand how to manage life more generally. And those might be things like wig referrals or finance and benefits advice, fit notes for employers. Issues such as fertility pre preservation, where relevant, also add another dimension to the dialogue that can often be an unexpected and challenging uh, point for patients. We have a responsibility to be open and honest about treatment expectations and outlook so that these aspects can continue to be managed carefully. And beyond the initial diagnosis, patients become more comfortable with the diagnosis and treatment vocabulary. And so conversations and treatment needs to, to tend to build on those that have already taken place. End of treatment, reaching end of treatment represents another information milestone. And again, offering a holistic needs assessment at this stage can be really helpful to address the individual concerns of the patient and their family. And once again, the HNA leads to a supportive care conversation and a care plan, which can be really useful for goal setting and signposting to other agencies or further written resources. For patients that have been unable to work during treatment, this is a really useful moment to have a conversation about that if it hasn't already taken place and identify ways in which we might be able to support a timely return to work. Sometimes it's just having a conversation. This is also a good moment to reiterate the importance of a healthy lifestyle, balance of exercise or activity and a nutritious diet. And there's also a need to continue monitoring in the clinic and information about the frequency and nature of this monitoring is really important. From the point of diagnosis to long-term or end-of-life care, patients are assigned a key worker, usually a clinical nurse specialist, who forms a key function in, in their role. They're a key point of contact the patient and their family, and they play a major role in delivery of information. Patients are able to contact the clinical nurse specialist directly with any questions or information needs, or even just to recap information that they receive during a clinic appointment. The clinical nurse specialist remains at the point of contact after treatment's completed. So it's really important. Yeah, Stella, I think, Michelle, that was such a fantastic roundup of all the different type of information resources that are out there and the information needs that that patients may may have. I guess there's also the risk that you may overwhelm a patient if you're trying to give them all the information, at, you know, at a certain point at diagnosis, for example. Um, are there aspects of this we don't always get right, Stella? And, and kind of, I suppose this is something that every member of the team has to think about. Yes. Um, I mean, yes, it is standard practice. The patients are given the information booklet at the beginning when they're first diagnosed. Um, but of course, there are some patients uh, who, are, who never read it. 
Um, but there is often a carer or someone else who's with them who will read it and support them uh, through that. But as Michelle has said, a single booklet at the beginning is just not enough. It's a continuous process. And we as doctors need to uh, reinforce that, that that as we go on. And every consultation, as I said, is an opportunity for learning a bit more. One area I think that we we're not certainly not good at is on the labelling of drugs and the reason for each supportive care drug, because we give them huge numbers of, of, of supportive care drugs. Um, and it's also important for them to recognise which ones they shouldn't run out of. We've tried to get a short printout stating the reason for each drug on our drug labels, but we haven't yet succeeded because it's quite difficult when you, you have to recognise that when there's a central pharmacy and medications can be given to, uh, for different reasons within a big trust, it's not quite as straightforward as you think. But I think there are definitely ways around it and that's something we can improve on is maybe another sheet for patients, but it's probably worth uh, uh, conquering this that problem because it's a major major problem for patients I think I think one aspect of this that I'm particularly interested in is this is the idea that supportive care is something that happens across the patient journey um Michelle I'm interested in your view on what could be done to make this easier for the patient and I'm particularly thinking perhaps about how care is coordinated um, can it sometimes be quite fragmented for the patient trying to track, you know, their their healthcare needs and, and who does what part? Yeah, of course, Emma. I completely agree with you. You're absolutely correct. Supportive care actually begins pre-diagnosis. And I quite like the NICE definition, which captures this really well around supportive care, helping the patient and their family to cope with cancer and the treatment of it improved diagnosis and treatment to cure continuing illness or death and into bereavement. And it helps the patient to maximize the benefits of treatment and to live as well as possible with the effects of the disease. It's given equal priority alongside diagnosis and treatment. Supportive care is just as important and it happens along the whole continuum. And so with regards to coordination across the supportive care pathway, I think while this is the responsibility of the whole MDT, the clinical nurse specialist undoubtedly plays a major role here in facilitating a more streamlined approach for patients. And where treatments and supportive care are delivered regularly, appointments can be booked in advance and a schedule of appointments provided to the patient to help with that forward planning. We know that cancer patients incur huge expense associated with hospital visits, from travel costs, time from work for themselves and all their carers, and sometimes childcare costs, and optimising appointment schedules where possible is one way to do this. Of course, this may not always be possible, and expectation needs to be managed around this, just like every other aspect of patient care. However, we can also consider the mode of the appointment, with many patients now receiving follow-up appointments via telephone or video platforms. And of course, we can also explore opportunities for supportive care that can be delivered through the primary care physician as well. Thank you. Stella, on this topic of the patient journey, I'd be interested in your view of aspects that we perhaps do get right on this, but also things that could be changed, um, you know, perhaps just about how that care is coordinated that would actually potentially make a, quite a bit of difference to patients. Yes, thank you. 
Um, I think we've come a long way in understanding the wider needs of cancer patients across the journey, but I still think there's far more we need to, to that we can do to improve on. Um, if you look back, look at the James Linda Lance and the feedback of the from patients there, you'll see there are areas for improvement. First, we need to recognise, as Michelle has pointed out, just how exhausting it is for patients who often have multiple appointments across a fragmented healthcare system. Um, a patient's very fortunate if they come in with a relative or carer who has a clipboard because that person is going to guide them through and make sure they get to their appointments and they're going to try and help them. But there are plenty of patients who don't. Um, there are those, this comes up in the James Linda Lance, those who live alone, socially disadvantaged, those from ethnic minorities where there may be language or cultural barriers. We need to be very active in supporting them. And the CNS is very good at detecting this, but I think as doctors, we need to take a bit more responsibility and, and be proactive about these groups of patients who need help. We need to be um, sort of proactive in terms of ensuring that they that we minimize their appointments. I think we often don't think about that. Uh, if we can do a referral directly rather than sending them back to their GP and saying get a referral from your GP, if we think the patient needs obvious referral, we should just do it ourselves. You have to recognize that a patient with a hematological malignancy um, from which they may die sees us as the cornerstone of their health care. They may have lots of comorbidities, but they see us as the most important uh, focal point. And therefore, we need to take responsibility ourselves uh, for their, their pathway. Another area I think that we as doctors really are not very good at necessarily is in planning and encouraging patients to return to work. Um, I know the nurses do that, but of course, whenever we see them in their consultation, we've got an opportunity to look forwards and also encouraging them to exercise and to, to uh, try and keep a watch on gaining weight because sometimes patients, there's almost a rebound gaining of weight, sometimes as a result of the drugs we've given them. But um, we have to, we need to also be active about that and looking forwards to returning to a, a, a better lifestyle. So overall, I, I believe that improving the whole patient pathway is a matter of ethos. Do we want our patients to feel positive and supported every time they visit us? Good supportive care consists of attention to detail in all aspects of the patient journey. Um, multiple small improvements can add up to a big difference for the patient. Fantastic, Stella. Thank you so much. I think I have um, one sort of final question for both of you to to bring um, this episode to a close today. Um, and I think for our listeners, I'd be interested to hear from both of you if there was one aspect that you think we could all do with reflecting on a bit more in our in our practice or kind of considering, do we do things the right way or do we need to take a, a step back? If there was one particular area you would kind of like our listeners to reflect on, um, what would that be? Michelle, I'll come to you first on that one. Uh, thanks, Emma. Yeah, so I think there's just one crucial question that we, we need to make sure that we're asking to our patients, uh, and that's what matters to you, not what's the matter with you. Uh, and then we'll be able to deliver much better focused patient-centered care that helps to meet the needs of our patients. I think it's fine to look at a set of blood results and uh, you know, identify when somebody requires a transfusion 
or uh, screen for sepsis uh, and manage uh, side effects of, of treatment or side effects of disease. But unless we are really meeting the needs of our patients and asking them what matters to them, uh, we won't be able to provide excellence in supportive care. Thank you, Michelle. And Stella, same question to you. If there was kind of one area that you'd like uh, healthcare professionals in working in this field to reflect on, what would that be? I think it's um, maybe, I think it's accessibility. I think patients feel that they're not able to, that they do feel they can access the CNSs, and I think that's wonderful. And they're very good at, 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 at uh, managing that. I think we're not always accessible enough in terms of appointments and I think patients often feel they have to wait for another appointment when they've got a problem we need to do our best to make ourselves accessible within the limits of course of coping with the volume of work we have and the other demands Fantastic. Thank you. That's given us so much to think about and a fantastic overview to start this series um, on supportive care in hemato-oncology. Thank you both so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Um, it's been very insightful and a really good basis for our following episodes. So in episode two, we will be talking to consultant hematologist Professor Gordon Cook from Leeds and Professor Graham Jackson from Newcastle about managing and preventing infection uh, in this group of patients. So thank you both so much today. Thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you. Bye.